Today's passage is from Exodus 33. I'll also be reading the tail end of uh, chapter 33 and then sort of describing what's really going to cover the beginning of chapter 33 through uh, to uh, the end of chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, The very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in the home stretch of our Exodus series, so we're in the middle of this sequence here at the end of Exodus, and the question kind of on the table is, how will God be with his people? How will God be? be with his people. So I want to start this morning sort of in uh, just, just a few words about um, some helpful ways to read the scriptures. So sometimes it's helpful when you're, when you're reading scripture, not just to read in context. You should read in context. It's important to read in context. But sometimes it matters quite a bit how the material is organized, sort of scene next to scene next to scene. And you, you can sort of do this thing where you look at each scene that you're reading and, and, say, and ask, like, what, what's the general theme? What's the question on the table here? And then you go to the next one, and you try to identify the theme there. And then you, you see if there's a commonality as you're going along, if, if a repeating theme keeps on coming up. Now, something that you'll sometimes see is that the biblical authors will arrange uh, themes in a very strategic way. So, for instance, take today's passage. Uh, originally, we were going to have Everett preach um, two weeks ago on, on the tabernacle uh, and, and then end the series with this sermon. Now we're kind of rearranging things. But in any case, here's how the whole ending of Exodus happens. You have a bunch of chapters where God is describing how the tabernacle will be built. And then you have the scene of, of the golden calf where Israel's trying to kind of pull God down off the mountain. And then you have the scene where, where God says, I'm not going to be with my people anymore. Moses uh, pleads with him, and God agrees to be with his people. And then again, you have a bunch of chapters on the tabernacle, just like you did at the beginning, and they're almost word for word the same. There are differences, but there's this strong emphasis on Israel going about exactly what the Lord described earlier. So what you have here at the end of Exodus for really the last 15 chapters is two bookends, tabernacle passages, tabernacle passages, and then in between, you have uh, you know, the thing with the golden calf and, and this conversation between God and Moses. And all of them share a common theme, this question of how will God be with his people? The tabernacle is the house of God that he was going to use to be with his people. The golden calf incident, like we talked about, has a lot to do not only with worshiping other gods, but with actually trying to coerce the presence of God with them. So again, the question is about how will God be with his people? Today, the whole question on the table is, will God be with his people at all? And then finally, once that's been resolved, you return to this stuff about the tabernacle. Now, uh, this is a common th thing that you read throughout Scripture, this kind of pattern of, of, of two bookends and then a middle part that's really, really important. For us, we're kind of Western thinkers. We have anglicized kind of minds. And so oftentimes when we're reading a story, the story kind of is shaped like this. You know, here's the beginning, and then here's the end. The, the most important part is here at the end, and we read the whole thing in light of the end. And there's nothing wrong with reading a story that way. In fact, the Bible actually tells us to do just that. Like, we're supposed to read all of human history in light of 
it's ending, right? When, when Christ returns, makes all things new. And so that Western way of reading stories isn't wrong. But in the ancient Near East and, and, and later on, uh, even in the New Testament, you'll see this thing happen where, where Hebrew thinkers, sometimes the way they arrange material isn't like just an upward slope. It's almost like a, a peak. So you have two, um, two uh, installments on, on either end, and the middle part helps you interpret those. You're supposed to read the two things on the end by the middle. So the middle is actually the most important for interpretation. This is called chiasm as the, as the actual term for this. But it's basically a, a way of sequencing material so that the middle part interprets the, the bookends. Uh, in fact, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, he's, he's famous for doing something like this. In fact, commentators will jokingly talk about the Mark and Sandwich uh, because he'll do this thing where you know, there'll be one theme here and then another theme on the other end, and you're supposed to read what happens in the middle uh, by the bookends and then vice versa. So it's, it's, it's just a, a different way of thinking. But I only bring this up to say that this whole opening here at Exodus has been built like a chiasm. So this whole thing here at the end of Exodus is built like a chiasm. You have these two passages about the tabernacle on either end, and then here in the middle, you have what I think is the most important scene of the ending. You're supposed to read the whole last 15 chapters of Exodus, and I think arguably the entire book in light of today's scene. The material has been arranged so that if we were Hebrew readers, our, our antenna would go up here at the conclusion of the middle part. And we would know like, oh no, this, this is going to change everything. I'm going to return to the tabernacle thing and I'm going to see it differently now because I've gone through this middle part. Does this make sense? I feel like I'm not really communicating this very well. I hope that's passable at least. Uh, and anyway, so I say all this just to say this is a, this is a whole sequence about, about God being with his people and this is sort of the key moment, the, the keystone of this whole sequence. So what we have is Moses in conversation with God. God originally was going to uh, reject Israel because they had broken covenant with him. They had made the golden calf and, uh, and were, were either seeing the calf as a God, which is obviously very bad, or seeing the calf as like the seat of the real God, which is also very, very bad. And so they have broken the covenant already. It's only been 40 days, but instead God relents. Moses intercedes for Israel, God relents, he's not going to destroy them. But then he announces what the ESV translates as disastrous news. God says, I'm not going to destroy Israel, they can go ahead and they can take the promised land, I will, you know, they can clear out the, the, the land for themselves, but I will not be going with them. And, and this is translated as disastrous news. The people mourn. In fact, they even, they take off all their earrings and necklaces and stuff, which was an ancient Near Eastern way of mourning. So when, when you would lose a family member, you would take off anything that was shiny, anything that was colorful, you would wear just very, very drab tones, and you would be in mourning. In fact, the text indicates that Israel dresses this way for the rest of their wilderness wanderings. For the rest of their wilderness, well, we never think about this. This is the first time I noticed it, but for the rest of their wanderings in the wilderness, they are in mourning garb. So they remove all their, their, their earrings, all their jewelry, everything, because God will not be going with them. The covenant has been broken. They've rejected his way, and now they're losing God himself. And for, we have to understand that like, this, is, this is the loss of their very identity, who God's people are are the people that God is with. That's what makes them God's people, right? But if God is not with them, then who are they? 
There's nothing different about them than any of the other nations. This is the death of their meaning in life. This is the death of their identity. It's the death of their place in history. But there's this one piece of hope. Israel has fallen from the glory of God. They have no access to him, but Moses does. Moses does. There is a mediator. There is somebody who is standing in for Israel before God. So God is still meeting with Moses face to face. Israel has this intercessor. And what follows after this scene, God says he's not going to destroy Israel. And then what follows is what's been one of the most memorable scenes in the whole biblical narrative for me. It's this really intimate, tender portrait of a man encountering God, pleading with God. And it culminates in this stirring moment where God actually reveals his character. And there is way too much for just one sermon. So this is going to be a paltry excuse for trying to encapsulate everything that's in this uh, in this passage, but I will do my best. All right, so first what we're going to look at is we're going to walk through three requests that Moses makes of God. There's three requests that Moses makes of God after God says he's not going to destroy the people. Uh, in, these, in these requests, what I especially want us to be looking out for is I think what you're seeing here is Moses is asking for what we all need. Moses is asking for what the people of God need from God, okay? So the first thing that he asks for is he asks for God to show him his ways. He asks for God to show him his ways. Uh, Here's uh, where the passage is at, uh, chapter 33, 12 through 13. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this, this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider, too, that this nation is your people. So at this point, Moses is is working off the assumption that God's not going to end up going with him. God has already mentioned a messenger that will go with them or an angel that will go with them, but he hasn't said who that's going to be. So Moses is asking, so who, who is this person that you're sending with me? But more importantly, Moses understands something here. He understands that he has this unique thing with God, that God says, you've found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And and Moses values that, as he should, right? And what's so interesting about this moment is that what's way more important to Moses is not so much that he knows God, that's going to come into play, but at this particular moment, what's really important to him is that God knows him. There's this interesting pattern throughout the scriptures that we should think about where, where it seems as though the most important thing is that God knows you. I mean, as far as you knowing God, you, you ought to, and, and that's extremely important, but you're only going to get so far. The most important thing is that God knows you, that you're in the kind of relationship where you're in God's party, Right? It reminds me of that moment in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if any of you uh, read the Narnia books. I've read them obsessively in my life. I used to read them every winter for about 12 years straight. Um, and now Edmund's going through it, and so uh, it's, it's great. Um, but there's a moment in Voyage of the Dawn Treader where this character, Eustace, he's just recently been undragoned. So he, uh, he turns into a dragon because he does something very, very selfish, and you got to read the book, and it's very good. Uh, but he, he encounters sort of the Christ figure of the books, Aslan, and Aslan undragons him. He, he rips off the dragon flesh and restores him to being a person. 
again. And Eustace is kind of shocked. He doesn't know who this strange lion is that he just met, and he, he returns back to the camp where everyone else is, and, and Edmund's awake. Not my Edmund, the story's Edmund. Uh, that Edmund is named after, incidentally. Um, but, so he encounters Edmund there on, on, the, on the beach and tells Edmund everything that's happened uh, with this strange lion. And Edmund says, well, it seems as though you've met Aslan. And, and Eustace says, oh, so you know him. And he says, well, I, I'm not sure I can say that, but more importantly, he knows me. And so at this moment, Moses knows that God knows him, that he, he's somehow in with God by a supreme act of grace. But he also knows that there is, you know, the scriptures make a point of saying that Moses was a very humble man. And so Moses knows his limitations. He knows that there's nothing biologically different uh, between him and, and just any other Israelite. He is just as capable of sinning as all the rest of them. And so he asks to know God's ways. He, he wants to know what it is to act in keeping with the kingdom of the Lord so that he doesn't fall out of favor with the Lord. So he asks, show me your ways so, I, so that I might not lose favor with you. Secondly, Moses asks for God to go with them. Moses asks for God's presence. This is verses 14 to 17. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So God tells Moses at first that he will be with him. It's, it, it's, it's less clear in the, in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's a singular thing. I'm going to be with you, singular, right? So at first God is saying, Moses, I'll go with you, but not with the people. And then Moses intercedes. Again, we have this image of Moses interceding on behalf of the people and saying, you have to go with all of us. If you don't go with all of us, then there's nothing different between us and all the other nations, the whole thing falls apart. How can you go with just me and not with all of us? And so God, again, is, is gracious in return. I'll go with all of you. The thing that you've spoken, I will do. And this is important for us to remember. So what this moment tells us is that the one thing that sets apart God's people, the thing that sets us apart from all other people is not how awesome we are. It's not some natural goodness that we have. It's not our beard game, right? Which is considerable in this congregation. Lots of people doing a really good job. Cody tries. So <laughs> uh, it's not the beard game. It's, it's, it's something else. It's not about us. The thing that sets God's people apart is God with us. I hope Cody's live streaming. Otherwise, I just said something about him not in his presence. Uh, so I hope that wasn't sinful if that's true. Um, he, he would say it himself. So anyway, so the thing that sets us apart is God with us. We are who we are because God is with us. Otherwise, we're nothing. Otherwise, we're nothing. In order to be what we've been saved to be, we need the Spirit of God working in and through us. God has promised us 
that his spirit will be with his people. That is the thing that sets us apart. But we're also very aware of the fact that there are many congregations that walk not in step with the spirit, rejecting what, you know, they're, they're unresponsive to the word, they, they are not worshipful, they are not loving toward one another, they are actively resistant toward all the things that are involved in keeping step with the Spirit. So maybe if the, you know, even if the Spirit is actually with them, there are no signs of life. And we should realize that that could be us. God's Spirit is with us. So we must walk in step. So Moses intercedes for God's presence and God gives it. God gives his spirit by grace. Then thirdly, Moses asks for God to show him his glory. So that's the passage I I already read. So this to me is this very tender moment where, where Moses asks to see God's glory. Moses has just interceded for the people, a people that Moses surely knows is going to fail again. And God has promised to be with them. And then Moses suddenly asks for, for something, not for the people, but for himself. Moses asks for something, not for the people necessarily, but for himself. Show me your glory. So why does he ask to see God's glory? So the answer isn't obvious. The, the scriptural writers are literary geniuses, so they... Uh, they write good literature. So they follow one of the basic rules of, of writing, which is you show, you don't tell. So there's not a lot of like runway flagging down of obvious meanings sometimes in the scriptures. They're just going to tell a story and they expect you to, uh, to, to dig it out. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's obvious why Moses is asking to see God's glory, but I, I think that we can surmise from the context and everything that I think he's asking for two things. I think he's asking for assurance and in, in, a, in a way, he's asking for intimacy. So first, assurance. He wants some physical sign that God really will go with them. He wants God to, to sort of demonstrate in a special way that God really is going to be with his people. And the reason why I think that that's a big part of this is because uh, God, soon after this, in the beginning of chapter 34, as he's preparing Moses for this, this encounter with God, he tells Moses to cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'm going to write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. So the breaking of the tablets earlier was Moses' way of telling Israel, the covenant is over, you know. And so God, as he's preparing Moses for this vision, he tells Moses, oh, also, while you're at it, bring new tablets. Israel broke the covenant, I'm going to make it new. So there's this somehow God and Moses, there's this understanding that this encounter that's about to happen has something to do with God assuring the people that he really is going to go with them. And a big part of that is saying the covenant is on again, not because of you, but because of me. And so God is going to assure Moses through this vision that he really is going to be with them and and the, the tablets are going to be a part of what goes down on the mountain. So I think there's also another side to this as well, which is that Moses wants intimacy with God. So the gods of the nations, they are many things. They are powerful and brutal. They are capricious and arbitrary. Uh, Moloch will ask you for your children in exchange for, for giving you convenience. Mammon will give you wealth in exchange for your soul. 
So the gods of the nations are many things, but one thing they are not is gracious. But here's Yahweh, who's been betrayed by a stubborn, hard-hearted people. He is rightfully poised to judge, and yet he keeps giving grace. What kind of God is this? That would be the question on Moses' mind. We tend to sort of assume grace. We sort of, like in a, in a Christendom or post-Christendom culture, those of us who are Christian, we, we're, we're almost unsurprised by the presence of grace in a deity. Moses would, would, be, would have been very, very surprised by the presence of grace in a deity. What kind of God is this? And so I, I wonder if a part of why Moses asks to, to see God is because he's really asking to know God. God keeps on saying, I know you, Moses. I know you by name. And now you have Moses asking, but can I know you? And what follows is one of the high points in all of the scriptural story. God tells Moses to show up at a certain place. He tells him to bring two new, covenant, uh, two new tablets. Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says yes, but then when God says yes, he doesn't say, I'm going to show you my glory. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim to you my name. Moses has one idea of what's about to go down. God has another idea of what's about to go down. So first he says, I'm going to show you my goodness. Moses asks to see God's glory. And he wants to see God's glory so he can be reassured, so he can know God. But then God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. So here's what we need to understand here. Knowing God is not about knowing what God looks like. That's not what it's ultimately about. Well, maybe a better way of saying that would be that uh, you can't encounter the sight of God without encountering everything else about him too. You don't just see the sight of God, you encounter everything about God. So to, to flesh this out a little bit more, with people, uh, you can be a beautiful person and be just an utter terrible bully, right? You can look good and be bad as a person. The sight of you doesn't, isn't directly related to who you are as a human. You can also be very, very homely and be a wonderful person, right? For God, it is not that way. God is one. He is whole. The vision of God's glory is also the vision of his goodness. And so for, for Moses on the mountain, the most important takeaway for him is not going to be the light show, right? It's not going to be the, the, the song and dance. It's going to be the very goodness of God, the knowledge of who God is, which is why God is not only going to, to show his goodness, he's going to proclaim his name, he says. He's not only going to show his goodness, he's going to proclaim his name, which really just means that God is going to disclose who he is. The sight of God is not going to be without content. God is going to show Moses a vision of himself and he's going to exegete himself, right? He's going to explain what Moses is encountering in, in the vision of God. And he says that he's going to proclaim his name. So God places Moses in the rock and he passes before him. Moses is not given to see uh, God's face. And again, the, we've talked about this before, but anytime you're, you're hearing or you're reading uh, 
you know, passages about sort of the sight of God's back and his face, his hand. I think that these are, this is the author's best attempt to grope toward what it was like to see God. So I don't know if, if what we're supposed to read here is that Moses literally saw a hand or if there was an experience much like a hand covering something. You know, God has no body, and so the vision of, that God is providing is a vision God is providing, right? So the, the unmitigated sight of God might be something else entirely. God has no body. And so, uh, you know, you never know if, if this is um, sort of Moses' best attempt at explaining what it is that he's encountering, but uh, e- even so, the, the point is that there's some, some kind of vision of God, the, the, an encounter with life itself, the source of life itself, with nothing between you and it, that the scriptural writers refer to as the face of God, and it kills people. That the encounter of life itself in the face of God, we are not prepared as we are to encounter that, and we die when we do. So Moses is concealed from seeing the face of God, and instead he sees uh, what he describes as God's back. And as this vision is passing before him, the voice of God is proclaiming his name, and here's what God says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I want to unpack this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. God does not relate to us as we deserve. As with Israel, God relates to us as we don't deserve. In mercy, he withholds the judgment we should get. In grace, he gives us the gifts we shouldn't get. It is God's nature to give grace, to forgive. Moses asked for mercy, and he didn't need to ask twice. God is given to grace. He is slow to anger. God is just. But out of his desire for repentance, his justice is slow in coming. He is not rash. He isn't functioning on a hair trigger. He isn't just waiting for you to do something to make him mad. His posture toward us is for our good. He desires that we would be in his kingdom. He is patient in love. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So these two concepts are linked. Whenever you see the phrase steadfast love in your Bibles, it's usually translating the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is a covenantal term. It's describing this constant, enduring commitment of yourself in love. The closest analog that we have is the love that couples vow to each other in marriage. It is a love that is joined through promise. God says that, he, that who he is is this kind of love, chesed, and that he is faithful to it. He makes his vows and he keeps them always. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, giving iniquity, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God does not treat us according to our sin, but according to his grace not according to our merits, but according to Christ's. This isn't a new development in God's character they just came up with 
in Bethlehem. It is who God is. He is forgiving. And finally, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God is patient and gracious, but he is also just. In the end, he withholds his right to condemn, and when his patience is exhausted, the Lord of all the earth will do right. So God tells Moses who he is, and Moses falls on his face, and Moses' response is very important. He, 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 he has taken away something new from this encounter. In, in particular, it's that God has proclaimed his very nature to be forgiving and gracious. And so in, in light of, of this news about God's forgiveness and the centrality of God's forgiveness, Moses now says, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses has asked almost this exact same thing a couple other times. Uh, and and each, each time it sort of God ratchets up his response, but this time Moses realizes exactly what it is that he needs to ask for. He has to ask for God to be forgiving. That in order for God to go with his people, God will have to forgive and forgive and forgive over and over. Moses asks for reassurance, and God tells him who he is. God's answer to our anxiety and our confusion and our hopelessness is not to point out how things around here really aren't so bad. Look on the bright side. His answer is not even always to take away the challenges. When we wonder where we stand with God, if we can really trust him, God's answer is to tell us who he is. So what do we do when we wonder if God is really there for us in the face of financial hardship or broken marriage or loss or any other kind of anxiety, we need to know who God is. What do we need when we don't feel up to the task of obeying God, up to the task of raising our children in the Lord, up to the task of, of forgiving each other, up to the task of announcing the gospel to those who need to hear it, up to the task of serving our county or raising up people to cross barriers for the gospel? We need to know who God is. What do we need to be able to what do we need to be able to look out at a country that's divided and in disarray uh, with an ongoing pandemic with uh, likely governmental abuse with the needs of so many people increasing and being exploited with the uncertainty of where this whole thing is going nationally how do we have any confidence that this whole vast human story isn't just going to end in anticlimax we need to know who God is God will not fail to be gracious, and he will keep every single one of his promises to us. The question at the start today was, how will God be with his people? So there's two ways to ask the question, how, right? So when a mother encounters an older son giving his younger sister a swirly. There are two ways. <laughs> How can I philosophize about this? Uh, so there are two ways in which a mother might ask, how could you have done this? One, I'm going to call the logistical question. Like, how did you make your sister's hair look like a McDonald's soft serve? Uh, 
Uh, to which the, the son is going to be like, I put her hair in the toilet bowl and I flushed it. So that's one way of asking how, the logistical side. But there's another way of asking the question how, sort of the moral side. How could you have done this? <laughs> right? Um, so the question at the start today, how will God be with his people? Next week, Everett is going to answer the logistical, this is practically how it's going to happen side of that question that's going to be in the, in the tabernacle. Literally, what are, the, what are the logistics of how God is going to be with Israel? But today we're asking a different kind of question. We're asking sort of how will God be with his people without striking out at them, right? How will God be with his people in grace? And the answer is that he will do it through forgiveness. God will be with his people through forgiveness. And what Moses saw on the mountain, like what he was overawed by, what brought him to his knees, wasn't even the half of how God was going to be with his people through forgiveness. The grace of God came to him through the tabernacle in the desert, but it came through the, to the world through the tabernacle of Jesus' body. When we wonder if God is with us, we can look to a stable on the outskirts of the city of David where God's graciousness led him to become one of us. We look to the feeding trough where the one through whom all things were made is cradled. We look to the infant born not into wealth but into poverty, subject to our frailty, vulnerable to our death. We look to the incarnation, to the God who did not mourn to be with us, but came eating and drinking and delighting to feast with sinners. And wherever he went, the kingdom went with him. That is how we answer the question, how will God be with us? He will do it through joyful acts of grace and forgiveness. As it was then, so it is now. God will not abandon us. That God will not forsake us. He will be with us as he always has been by grace. I think a question that I want to ask you guys this morning is do you know that God is with you? Do you know that God is with you, Christian? Because so often, I think we forget. God is with you. God is with you. By the grace of Christ, God is with you. So walk with him. You are not alone. You aren't being called to respond alone. God is with you. Let's pray. Lord, as I approach you in prayer, I'm going to read uh, some song lyrics by uh, the ever-folksy Rich Mullins. So I think he puts a lot of this into, into good language. So if you guys will listen as I, as I read this and I'll pray. 
So this is a, these are lyrics from the song, Surely God is with us. So who's that man? He says he's a prophet. Well, I wonder if he's got something up his sleeve. Where's he from? Who's his daddy? There, there's rumors he even thinks himself a king of a kingdom of paupers, simpletons and rogues. The whores all seem to love him and the drunks propose a toast and they say, surely God is with us. Who's that man? Says he's a preacher. Well, he must be, he's disturbing all our peace. Where does he get off? What's he hiding? Well, every word he says, those fools believe. Who can move a mountain? Who could love their enemy? Who could rejoice in pain and turn the other cheek and still say, surely God is with us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who make peace, they are God's children. I am the bread of life. You hear that man, believe what he's saying. Tell me who's that man, they made him a prisoner, tortured him and nailed him to a tree. Was he so bad, who did he threaten? Do you deserve to die between two thieves? See the scars and touch his wounds, his risen flesh and bone. Now sinners have become the saints, and the lost of all come home. And they say, surely God is with us. Surely God is with us. They say, surely God is with us today. Lord, we need you to show us your ways and to give us your presence and to show us your glory by giving us your goodness and by proclaiming who you are to us. Lord, give us yourself. I pray that we would walk in step with your spirit every day. Amen.